Chapter 14, Part 2 of The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea, Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1, by Frederick Wimper. Chapter 14, Part 2. The Pandora, a frigate of twenty-four guns and one hundred and sixty men, was selected for the service, and was placed under the command of Captain Edward Edwards, with orders to proceed to Otaheite, and if necessary the other islands. The voyage was destined to end in a shipwreck and disaster, but the captain succeeded in securing a part of the mutineers, of whom ten were brought to England, and four drowned on the wreck. The Pandora reached Matavia Bay on the 23rd of March, 1791. The armorer and two of the midshipmen, Mr. Haywood and Mr. Stewart, came off immediately and showed their willingness to afford information. Four others soon after appeared, and from them the captain learned that the rest of the Bounty's people had built a schooner and sailed the day before for another part of the island. They were pursued and the schooner secured, but the mutineers had fled to the mountains. A day or two elapsed when they ventured down and when within hearing were ordered to lay down their arms, which they did, and were put in irons. Captain Edwards put them into a roundhouse built on the after part of the quarter deck in order to isolate them from the crew. According to the statement of one of the prisoners, the midshipmen were kept ironed by the legs, separate from the men, in a kind of roundhouse aptly termed Pandora's box, which was entered by a scuttle in the roof about eighteen inches square. The prisoners' wives visited the ship daily, and brought their children who were permitted to be carried to their unhappy fathers. To see the poor captives in irons, says the only narrative published of the Pandora's visit, weeping over their tender offspring, was too moving a scene for any feeling heart. Their wives brought them ample quantities of every delicacy that the country afforded while we lay there, and behaved with the greatest fidelity and affection to them. Stuart, the midshipman, had espoused the daughter of an old chief, and they had lived together in the greatest harmony. A beautiful little girl had been the fruit of the union. When Stuart was confined in irons, Peggy, for so her husband had named her, flew with her infant in a canoe to the arms of her husband. The interview was so painful that Stuart begged she might not be admitted on board again. Forbidden to see him, she sank into the greatest dejection and seemed to have lost all relish for food and existence. She pined away and died two months afterwards. All the mutineers that were left on the island having been secured, the ship proceeded to other islands in search of those who had gone away in the bounty. It must be mentioned, however, that two of the men had perished by violent deaths. They had made friends with the chief, and one of them, Churchill, was his tail, or sworn friend. The chief died suddenly without issue and Churchill, according to the custom of the country, succeeded to his property and dignity. The other, Thompson, murdered Churchill, probably to acquire his possessions, and was in his turn stoned to death by the natives. Captain Edwards learned that after Bly had been set adrift, Christian had thrown overboard the greater part of the breadfruit plants, and divided the property of those they had abandoned. They at first went to an island named Tubai, where they intended to form a settlement, but the opposition of the natives and their own quarrels 
determined them to revisit Otaheite. There, the leading natives were very curious to know what had become of Bly and the rest, and the mutineers invented a story to the effect that they had unexpectedly fallen in with Captain Cook at an island he had just discovered, and that Lieutenant Bly was stopping with him, and had appointed Mr. Christian commander of the bounty. And further, he was now come for additional supplies for them. This story imposed upon the simple-minded natives, and in the course of a very few days, the bounty received on board 38 goats, 312 hogs, 8 dozen fowls, a bull and a cow, and large quantities of fruit. They also took with them a number of natives, male and female, intending to form a settlement at Dubai. Skirmishes with the natives, generally brought on by their own violent conduct or robberies, and eternal bickerings among themselves, delayed the progress of their fort, and it was subsequently abandoned, sixteen of the men electing to stop at Otaheite, and the remaining nine leaving finally in the bounty, Christian having been heard frequently to say that his object was to find some uninhabited island in which there was no harbor, that he would run the ship ashore and make use of her materials to form a settlement. This was all that Captain Edwards could learn, and after a fruitless search of three months, he abandoned further inquiry and proceeded on his homeward voyage. Off the east coast of New Holland, the Pandora ran on a reef and was speedily a wreck. In an hour and a half after she struck, there were eight and a half feet of water in her hold, and in spite of continuous pumping and bailing, it became evident that she was a doomed vessel. With all the efforts made to save the crew, thirty-one of the ship's company and four mutineers were lost with the vessel. Very little notice, indeed, seems to have been taken of the latter by the captain, who was afterwards accused of considerable inhumanity. Before the final catastrophe, says the surgeon of the vessel, three of the bounty's people, Coleman, Norman, and McIntosh, were now let out of irons and set to work at the pumps. The others offered their assistance and begged to be allowed a chance of saving their lives, instead of which two additional sentinels were placed over them, with orders to shoot any who should attempt to get rid of their fetters. Seeing no prospect of escape, they betook themselves to prayer and prepared to meet their fate, everyone expecting that the ship would soon go to pieces, her rudder and part of her stern post being already beaten away. When the ship was actually sinking, it is stated that no notice was taken of the prisoners, although Captain Edwards was entreated by young Haywood, the midshipman, to have mercy on them. When he passed over their prison to make his own escape, the ship then lying on her broadside with the larboard bow completely under water. Fortunately, the master-at-arms, either by accident or probably design, when slipping from the roof of the Pandora's box into the sea, let the keys unlocking the handcuffs and irons fall through the scuttle, and thus enabled them to commence their own liberation, in which they were assisted by one brave seaman, William Moulter, who said he would set them free or go to the bottom with them. He wrenched away, with difficulty, the bars of the prison. Immediately after the ship went down, leaving nothing visible but the topmast cross-trees. More than half an hour elapsed before the survivors were all picked up by the boats. Amongst the drowned were Mr. Stewart, the midshipman, and three others of the bounty's people, the whole of whom perished with the manacles on their hands. Thirty-one of the ship's company were lost. The four boatloads which escaped had scarcely any provisions on board, the allowance being two wine glasses of water to each man and a very small quantity of bread, calculated for sixteen days. 
their voyage of 1,000 miles on the open ocean and the sufferings endured were similar to those experienced by Bly's party, but not so severe. After staying at Kupang for about three weeks, they left on a Dutch East Indiaman, which conveyed them to Samarang and subsequently Batavia, whence they proceeded to Europe. After an exhaustive court-martial had been held on the ten prisoners, brought home by Captain Edwards, three of the seamen were condemned and executed. Mr. Haywood, the midshipman, the boatswain's mate, and the steward were sentenced to death, but afterwards pardoned. Four others were tried and acquitted. It will be remembered that four others were drowned at the wreck. Twenty years had rolled away, and the mutiny of the bounty was almost forgotten when Captain Folger, of the American ship Topaz, reported to Sir Sidney Smith at Valparaiso that he had discovered the last of the survivors on Pitcairn Island. This fact was transmitted to the Admiralty and received on May 14, 1809, but the troublous times prevented any immediate investigation. In 1814, HMS Britain, commanded by Sir Thomas Staines and the Tagus, Captain Pippin, were cruising in the Pacific when they fell in with the little-known island of Pitcairn. He discovered not merely that it was inhabited, but afterwards, to his great astonishment, that every individual on the island spoke very good English. The little village was composed of neat huts, embowered in luxuriant plantations. Presently they observed a few natives coming down in steep descent with their canoes on their shoulders, and in a few minutes perceived one of these little vessels dashing through a heavy surf and paddling off towards the ships. But their astonishment was extreme when, on coming alongside, they were hailed in the English language with, Won't you heave us a rope now? The first young man that sprang with extraordinary alacrity up the side and stood before them on the deck said, in reply to the question, Who are you? that his name was Thursday October Christian, son of the late Fletcher Christian, by an Otaheitan mother, that he was the firstborn on the island, and that he was so called because he was brought into the world on a Thursday in October. Singularly strange as all this was to Sir Thomas Staines and Captain Pippin, this youth soon satisfied them that he was none other than the person he represented himself to be, and that he was fully acquainted with the whole history of the bounty, and in short, the island before them was the retreat of the mutineers of that ship. Young Christian was at this time about twenty-four years of age, a fine tall youth, full six feet high, with dark, almost black hair, and a countenance open and extremely interesting, as he wore no clothes except a piece of cloth round his loins and a straw hat ornamented with black cock's feathers. His fine figure and well-shaped muscular limbs were displayed to great advantage and attracted general admiration. He told them that he was married to a woman much older than himself, one of those that had accompanied his father from Otaheite. His companion was a fine, handsome youth of seventeen or eighteen years of age of the name of George Young, the son of Young, the midshipman. In the cabin, when invited to refreshments, one of them astonished the captains by asking the blessing with much appearance of devotion. For what we are going to receive, the Lord make us truly thankful. The only surviving Englishman of the crew was John Adams, and when the captains landed through the surf with no worse result than a good wedding, the old man came down to meet them. Both he and his aged wife were at first considerably alarmed at seeing the king's uniform, but was reassured when he was told that they had no intention of disturbing him. Adams said that he had no great share in the mutiny, 
that he was sick at the time, and was afterwards compelled to take a musket. He even expressed his willingness to go to England, but this was strongly opposed by his daughter. All the women burst into tears, and the young men stood motionless and absorbed in grief, but on their being assured that he should on no account be molested, it is impossible, says Pippin, to describe the universal joy that these poor people manifested. When Christian had arrived at the island, he found no good anchorage, so he ran the bounty into a small creek against the cliff in order to get out of her such articles as might be of use. Having stripped her, he set fire to the hull, so that afterwards she should not be seen by passing vessels and his retreat discovered. It is pretty clear that the misguided young man was never happy after the rash and mutinous step he had taken, and he became sullen, morose, and tyrannical to his companions. He was at length shot by an Otaheitan, and in a short time only two of the mutineers were left alive. The colony at this time comprised forty-six persons, mostly grown-up young people, all of prepossessing appearance. John Adams had made up for any share he may have had in the revolt by instructing them in religious and moral principles. The girls were modest and bashful, with bright eyes, beautifully white teeth, and every indication of health. They carried baskets of fruit over such roads and down such precipices as were scarcely passable by any creatures except goats, and over which we could scarcely scramble with the help of our hands. When Captain Beechey, in his well-known voyage of discovery on the Blossom, called there in 1825, he found Adams, then in his 65th year, dressed in a sailor shirt and trousers, with all the sailor's manners, doffing his hat, and smoothing down his bald forehead whenever he was addressed by the officers of the Blossom. Many circumstances connected with the subsequent history of the happy little colony cannot be detailed here. Suffice it to say that it still thrives, and is one of the most model settlements of the whole world, although descended from a stock so bad. Of the nine who landed on Pitcairn's Island, only two died a natural death. Of the original officers and crew of the Bounty, more than half perished in various untimely ways, the whole burden of guilt resting on Christian and his fellow conspirators. The mutiny just described sinks into insignificance before that which is about to be recounted, the greatest mutiny of English history, that of the Noor. At that one point, no less than 40,000 men were concerned, while the disaffection spread to many other stations, some of them far abroad. There can be little doubt that prior to 1797, the year of the event, our sailors had labored under many grievances, while the Navy was full of pressed men, a portion of whom were sure to retain a thorough dislike to the service, although so many fought and died bravely for their country. Some of the grievances which the Navy suffered were probably the result of careless and negligent legislation, rather than of deliberate injustice but they were none the less galling on that account. The pay of the sailor had remained unchanged from the reign of Charles II, although the prices of the necessaries and common luxuries of life had greatly risen. His pension had also remained at a stationary rate. That of the soldier had been augmented. On the score of provisions, he was worse off than an ordinary pauper. He was in the hands of the purser, whose usual title at that time indicates his unpopularity. He was turned nip cheese. The provisions served were of the worst quality. Fourteen instead of sixteen ounces went to the navy pound. 
The purser of those days was taken from an inferior class of men and often obtained his position by influence rather than merit. He generally retired on a competency after a life of deliberate dishonesty toward the defenders of his country, who, had they received everything to which they were entitled, would not have been too well treated, and as it was, were cheated and robbed, without scruple and without limit. The reader will recall the many naval novels in which poor Jack's daily allowance of grog was curtailed by the purveyor's thumb being put in the pannikin. This was the least of the evils he suffered. In those war times, the discipline of the service was especially rigid and severe, and most of this was doubtless necessary. Men were not readily obtained in sufficient numbers. Consequently, when in harbor, leave ashore was very constantly refused for fear of desertions. These and a variety of other grievances, real or fancied, nearly upset the equilibrium of our entire navy. It is not too much to say that not merely England's naval supremacy was for a time in the greatest jeopardy through the disaffection of the men, but that of our national existence. Almost, and most certainly our existence as a first-class power, was alarmingly threatened, the cause being nothing more nor less than a very general spirit of mutiny. To do the sailors justice, they sought at first to obtain fair play by all legitimate means in their power. It must be noted, also, that a large number of our best officers knew that there was a very general discontent. Furthermore, it was well known on shore that numerous secret societies opposed to monarchy and incited by the example of the French Revolution had been established. Here again, the government had made a fatal mistake. Members of these societies had been convicted in numbers and sent to sea as a punishment. These men almost naturally became ringleaders and partakers in the mutiny, which would, however, have occurred sooner or later under any circumstances. In the case of the mutiny at Spithead, about to be recounted, the sailors exhibited an organization and amount of information which might have been expected from sea lawyers rather than ordinary jack tars. While in the more serious rebellion of the Noor, the cooperation of other agents was established beyond doubt. The first step taken by the men was perfectly legitimate, and had it been met in a proper spirit by the authorities, this history need never have been penned. At the end of February 1797, the crews of four line of battleships at Spithead addressed separate petitions to Lord Howe, commander-in-chief of the Channel Fleet, asking his kind interposition with the Admiralty to obtain from them a relief of their grievances so that they might at length be put on a similar footing to the army and militia, in respect both of their pay and of the provision they might be enabled to make for their wives and families. Lord Howe, being then in bad health, communicated the subject of their petitions to Lord Bridport and Sir Peter Parker, the Port Admiral, who, with a want of foresight and disregard of their country's interest which cannot be excused, returned answer that, the petitions were the work of some evil-disposed person or persons, and took no trouble to investigate the allegations contained in them. Lord Howe, therefore, did nothing, and the seamen, finding their applications for redress not only disregarded, but treated with contempt, determined to compel the authorities to give them that relief which they had before submissively asked. End of chapter 14, part 2